Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes was written by Suzanne Collins and was published in 2020. And The Hunger Games, colon, The Ballad of Songbirds <laughs> and Snakes, uh, came out just two days ago, November 17th, uh, 2023, and was directed by Francis Lawrence. Yes, and we are discussing the prequel Hunger Games movie. Um, obviously, we did the full Hunger Games trilogy and movie it's not, it's not a tetralogy. tetralogy. Thank you. Yeah. So check those episodes out if you haven't listened. Yeah. And uh, we were we knew this was coming out. I feel like there was a long stretch of time where they announced this movie and like the initial images came out of like them at the lake. Yeah. The characters. And then it was like a really long time before any other news or trailer. And I was like, is this still happening? Where is this? Well, we also had the actors strike going on. So that's probably why. Well, I mean, even before then, like, I think before the first trailer dropped, like between the first images we got and then the first trailer, it was like a long stretch of time, <laughs> yeah. which is very strange. Yeah, it's finally here. And it's definitely a surprise book, at least for me. I didn't think Suzanne Collins would write another book in this series. Especially a prequel focusing on snow. I know. Out of all the stories she could have told returning to this universe, I feel like this was the one that I least wanted to hear. <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of felt the same way. Like, my initial interest was zero. And I didn't read it. But then I saw the trailer come out. And, you know, I kind of had this thought where I'm like, you know, there's so many other stories alluded to in the original Hunger Games trilogy like, just characters like Finnick and his story and what happened to him or Haymitch. Mm-hmm. Or, and, like, the the idea of the Hunger Games is so rich with opportunity to tell s- stories about class and class inequality and, like, rebellion and things that I was like, you know what? I'm open to another story set in this universe. Yeah. So even though my initial reaction to it was like, eh, pass. Like, I think by the, tra- the, the, the time the trailer came out, I was like, okay, maybe... I'm I'm more open to it now. Yeah, and I also really love the idea of kind of showing us the Hunger Games kind of being shaped, right? Yes. Seeing what they would end up being, how we how Katniss sees them um, and experiences them, and kind of pulling back that layer and seeing the history of them a bit. Um, so yeah, let's get into the story a bit and talk about Coriolanus Snow. Coriolanus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yeah, speaking of like the time period being so interesting, this story takes place like around the 10th annual Hunger Games. So it's still in its infancy. It's still being like figured out, right? And a lot is talked about the war, right? The war between the districts and the capital. And the movie actually gives us a kind of flashback to Coriolanus and his cousin, Tigris, uh, kind of like navigating the scary capital at night, you know, with like rabid dogs and people cannibalizing each other. Yes. And this is kind of alluded to throughout the book, but we kind of get this distilled in like a flashback at the start. Yeah, I find it really interesting to explore because we know from the original trilogy, like how tough it is in the districts, right? Yeah. People starving, people living in poverty, people living in like squalid conditions, poor treatment from like the peacekeepers, the cops, you know. But to see like during the war that everyone kind of suffered and to kind of paint this picture of like, we know the capital as this 
ultra wealthy, extravagant, wasteful society, but it wasn't always like that. And seeing, you know, a picture of the young snows, right? And them starving and like a lot of people in the capital struggling at this time. Yeah. And I was, you know, interested to find out more about the capital because a lot of times uh, governments that depict this image of themselves as being like impervious to like any problems or like being perfect or oftentimes like just covering up a lot of shit that's going on and a lot of problems and a lot of like whether it's poverty or, or other issues. So I'm like. I kind of want to see what is actually like under the surface of the capital, right? Yeah, yeah. And getting a little bit of history is really interesting. I also find it interesting to think about like, because, you know, Pan Am is like in the far future, right? Yeah. And it's sort of hinted that whatever was before was destroyed and maybe some kind of nuclear war or climate event, right? Like civilization collapsed and then Pan Am kind of came from the ashes of that. And then we don't really know how long Panem existed before the District Rebellion. Yeah, like the District Rebellion is kind of the point of change, you know, like that the Hunger Games began and everything, but like... How long did Panem exist before that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of implied that maybe Panem is the only thing left in the world, maybe. Maybe. It's kind of hinted at. Yeah. But you do get a glimpse at one point during a weather report in this movie of Panem. I'm sure there's maps online, too. Yeah, there are. Um, has Suzanne Collins, has there ever been a map that was, like, in a book? I don't think in a book, but I have seen maps, and I don't know if it was from her official website or not. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of curious about officially, what the, the grid layout is of uh, Panem in North America. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so... You know, we get this flashback to the wartime and it being really, like, scary and difficult. And then we get the present, which is, you know, around the time of the 10th Annual Hunger Games. And we're introduced to Coriolanus Snow, future president of Pan Am. Yes. And he is not doing super well. No. He <laughs> lives with his cousin Tigris and his grandmother, who they call the Grand Ma'am. The Grand Ma'am. Yes. Never just Grand Ma'am. The Grand Ma'am. The Grand Ma'am. Very funny. Um, their family was once very prestigious and wealthy and important. His father was like a general or some kind of military leader in the war. Mother died in childbirth and then his father died in the war. We're assuming that Tigris's parents have also died at some point. But now they're living in poverty, right? The war really destroyed a lot of the wealth that they have. And now um, I'm going to just call him Snow because trying to say the name Coriolanus <laughs> is going to be very difficult. Too many syllables. So I'm just going to say, so Snow is kind of like putting on this front, right? Pretending to still be rich to all his friends that go to school at this academy, because that's the position that he's always, like, tried to uphold. And a lot of people have recovered since the war and are doing well financially now, but the Snows are not. Yeah, I find this uh, setup kind of interesting, right? Like, the book begins with him, like, making, like, cabbage stew. Yeah. And he is getting dressed for this, like, event, right? The The reaping is coming up and he needs to look presentable. But, like, he only has, like, one shirt that's kind of stained and shitty and tigress managed to like get it cleaned and she's explaining like oh i threw it in with someone else's laundry so it would get bleached and i stole these stones for buttons and kind of like how they're like going to such efforts just to maintain this facade of them still having their wealth and their like position in society yeah and coriolanus like the book gives us a real perspective on him like he's very smart and he knows just how to sweet talk people and i find this to be an interesting difference from katniss from the original trilogy who just, like, had no idea how to, like, 
Lie to people. Lie to people, yeah, or put on a facade or, like, manipulate people. Like, that's all Coriolanus has, right? Like, so he has to kind of hold on to that. Yeah. I also like in the film, you know, he eventually arrives at this party, and there's just a lot of good dialogue about, like, him and other people, like, snickering about, like, I I don't know, just, like, bullshit, right? Like, just kind of, you can see him in this mode of trying to, like, win people over. Yeah. And I think it's really effective. Yeah, sweet-talking people, having this charm and charisma, and kind of that being maybe one of the only things he has at this point, right? I mean, he has, he's very smart, too. He's a really good student, and he's been counting on a scholarship, actually, because he does want to go to university. He knows if he's going to make something of himself and to save his family name and, you know, his cousin and his grandma, he has to get a university education, but they can't afford it. And the book is kind of vague on this. It's like, oh, there are various scholarships that are available. Yes. And he really needs one. And it's really important. But also the way that he gets it is never clearly defined, really. So it makes his goals, at least for a while, kind of blurry in that regard. Yeah, the movie is a lot clearer. They tell you right from the beginning, oh, the Plinth Prize, right? Yes. This is something for the top student, essentially the valedictorian, right? And that person gets a free ride to university. Yeah, and this is introduced later in the story, but I'm like... Well, this doesn't change anything. It just makes it more clear that, like, oh, I need this specific thing, right? Yeah. And the movie made the smart choice of that's just the thing from the beginning that he's after. Yeah, I think it would have made more sense in the book if we had, like, oh, the top student in the class gets a scholarship. Yeah. Just say that. Like, (laughs) that's so easy. Yeah. Just say that. So this is Snow's goal at this point. But things are different this year because it's the 10th anniversary of the Hunger Games And they're switching things up, Ian. And the movie kind of paints it as like, this is a condition of the Plinth Prize now. Yes. That they're going to introduce, they're going to have these top students in the class be mentors to the 24 tributes that are going to be thrown into the arena for the Hunger Games. Yes. And they're saying like, if your tribute wins, like that's good, but that's not the only thing that might win you the Plinth Prize because ultimately... They want to make more of a spectacle out of the Hunger Games. They really want, like, the because viewership is down, right? The numbers have come in. <laughs> they're bad. You know, season 10 of the Hunger Games is not looking good. It might get canceled. <laughs> so they want to get more viewership, right? They're kind of, like, testing out some new ways of doing that, right? Mm-hmm. To me, this felt like a, um, a twisted foreign exchange student program. It really does. Because we were kind of like, well, why would they have other students mentor the tributes yeah now in the future like of the the original trilogy it's former winners former victors of the hunger games that are the mentors which makes sense but i guess at this point they have no there's only 10 former victors yeah right so they might not have one from each district yeah yeah so i guess it makes sense to a degree and it yeah it just feels like a twisted foreign exchange student program it really it really (laughs) is and that's a, a funny point but yeah let's talk about what the hunger games are right now because like you said, they're, this is, like, going to be the 10th one. They haven't had a lot of them. Um, people aren't really watching them. And why would they, right? Yeah. It's just a bunch of dirty, starving children thrown into just, like, an like an actual a ba- arena. A basketball court. <laughs> yeah, it essentially is, yeah. right? It's, like, where um, Snow is talking about they used to have sporting events there, right? Yes. So it literally is just an enclosed space very much like a Colosseum would yes. have been in Rome, which I know Suzanne Collins basically based this whole Hunger Games idea on Rome and yes. the gladiators, right? 
So it's just like, okay, throw all these children in here and it's over very quickly, right? Yeah. They kind of all kill each other or one and one survives and that's it. Um, a far cry from the multi-day epic and cinematic experience that we know from the original trilogy. Yeah, and I kind of love seeing where it begins. And it would make sense because, like, they began this right after the war. So it makes sense that, like, I don't know, just get a bunch of uh, children and throw them in they this arena. They don't have arena. money for anything. No, they don't have, like, a plan. They're just kind of, like, going with it. But you can see why, like, okay, people aren't watching. Okay, well, how do we get people to watch? Let's add some pageantry. Like, let's make it more, people more invested in it, right? That's how the betting comes into play and, like, the, the, the gifts and, like... Uh, kind of turning it in. and then the victory tour after right mm-hmm. like and a lot of these things aren't even addressed right like no. the idea of the victory tour afterwards and going back through to the various districts right like they just kind of find a way to expand it further and further which just makes a lot of sense as to like wanting to retain its importance yeah and the first step in this process is bringing in the mentors and getting like a little bit of the capital people involved and in this case the capital students right the top capital students and they're going to have like some interviews and they're hoping to just kind of mix it up a little bit at this time. And so Snow is going to be part of this. And he obviously wants to have a tribute that's going to be successful and everything. And because this is a condition now of like a nebulous scholarship in the book and the Plinth Prize in the movie, he obviously wants to do well. Um, But before we get into the tributes and everything, um, we do have some side characters that we should discuss. Yeah, let's begin with Dean Highbottom. He kind of runs the school and he is very antagonistic towards Snow. And yeah. Snow doesn't know why. No. She, he's like, yep, he hates me. He is actually the architect of the Hunger Games. So he was the one who originally came up with the idea of the Hunger Games. He kind of has some involvement in them, it seems. Yeah. Although he's not like the head game maker. So his influence is kind of confusing in terms of the Hunger Games, but he is the dean of the school, so that influence is a little more clear. He's also an, a morphling addict, yeah. which is like their drug of choice at this time, and it's kind of like hinted at that maybe his whole involvement in the Hunger Games has caused him to be addicted to drugs. Yeah, and it's kind of hint- and also hinted at throughout that like maybe he doesn't believe in them anymore and that they should stop. I think this is more clear in the film yeah. where he's very openly like, maybe we shouldn't be killing children anymore. Mm-hmm. Just an idea. Throwing that out there. This is played uh, very well by Peter Dinklage. I think Peter Dinklage is fantastic in this role. Just kind of that world weary, yes. just tired kind of. Animosity showing towards <laughs> Snow. Yes, yes. He's very good in the role. Uh, we also have Sejanus, who is a sort of kind of friend of Snow. And he's what you would call new money. (laughs) His family comes from District 2, and they made a lot of money during the war with munitions, which is interesting because, like, Snow's family lost all their money because all their money was in District 13, I think, which got destroyed. Yeah. So so Janus almost, like, his family kind of surpassed Snow's family. Yeah. Dad used that money to kind of buy their way into a capital life, but nobody can forget, forget that the family, the Plinths, are uh, from the districts. Um, and the Plinth, the Plinth Prize. The Plinth Prize. <laughs> God, trying to say it. <laughs> the Plinth Prize is from uh, Sejanus's father, who has offered this scholarship. And Sejanus, like, 
he is this kind-hearted person and really just feels uncomfortable, I think, living in the capital while the rest of everyone he's ever known or grown up with lives in the districts. Yeah, he definitely has more empathy for the people in the districts, and he's kind of an outsider to everyone else in the group. It's kind of unclear. I mean, I think Snow is only friends with him because he his family has power. And money. And money. But, like, there also seems to be some amount of respect between them, so it's a little bit kind of unclear what exactly Snow sees in Sejanus. Um, but, I mean, Sejanus is, like, a pretty strong character as far as, like, standing up to people in terms of what he believes. You know, he has, like, a strong moral compass. Yeah, very against the Hunger Games. He also has kind of, I like his depiction in the film because he feels a little bit more, um, like, world-weary, kind of, like, tired of it all. He's a little bit snarky, mm-hmm. you know? I, I don't know, in, um... Uh, the book, I think he comes off like maybe more naive and idealistic. Yeah. And there is some of that in the film, too. But like, I feel like he's a little bit more like coming from a place of knowledge, I guess. Like he's he he kind of maybe knows more than other people. Yeah. He's seen a lot of things, which they all have for sure. Um, another important character is Dr. Gall, and she is the head game maker for The Hunger Games you know, responsible for making sure it's a good show. Right. And so she's very involved in this whole mentor project Ian and I were discussing earlier we're like it seems like she has some kind of position in the academy as well but that is never clearly defined to us in the book or the movie yeah I mean I feel like in the movie she just shows up at one point and then kind of assigns homework only to uh snow based on something he says so I don't think she has like an active role in the school whereas in the book she has she's just like holding class and, like, assigning homework. Meanwhile, she's also the head game maker. But then also she's, like, a mad scientist. Yeah. She has many, many a job. I'm, like, pick a lane. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I could accept mad scientist and head game maker. Like, maybe that's where her interests kind of intersect. But then also this stuff with the school. I'm, like, there has to be more people running the capital than her. Yeah. And between her and Dean Highbottom, it's kind of confusing about who has more influence in both the games and also the school. That's a really good point. Yeah. Because Highbottom made them, but she runs them. But, like... Highbottom sometimes has more authority over Snow, but she kind of surpasses him in a way. Yeah. It's a little confusing. Uh, Viola Davis, though. Oh, my God. She understood the assignment. She is going all out. She really she's, is. She's like a Batman villain. Mm-hmm. She really feels like she could came from, like, Arkham Asylum or uh, something. She's got the one blue eye and yeah. is just, like, in these wild outfits. In her introductory scene, she's literally in a clown outfit. Like, she has the <laughs> ruffles. She has the yeah. clown ruffles, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the outfits in this movie, we should at least address here, like, are really interesting and really good. I love the school uniforms. Yeah. Like, ever, like even the boys are in these, like, there's kind of a jacket and then this, like, long pleated skirt over pants. Yeah. And it took me a minute to realize. At first, I thought it was just a really long jacket, but I'm like, no, it's a skirt that's over pants and it's all kind of this scarlet color. Those are cool. I mean, obviously, you have very various um drab gray outfits for the um the tributes the, the tributes but there's kind of an old-timey vintage quality that feels like they're from the 1920s or something like overalls and uh I forget those hats that they have but yeah just kind of a lot of um influences from like earlier decades and stuff that's interesting yeah yeah so let's talk about uh the reaping and the tributes right 
Snow and the rest of his classmates eagerly watch the reaping to see who they're going to be assigned to. Snow is obviously hoping for someone who has a chance at winning. So the last person he wants is a girl from 12. And who does he get? A girl from 12. Yes. Uh, And her introduction is really wild. She is called up. She's kind of sauntering up the stage up to the stage and on her way past a girl she pulls a snake out and like puts it down this girl's dress yes and she's freaking out it causes a commotion it's apparently the mayor's daughter so the mayor just slaps the shit out of her on stage and gets pulled away it is a spectacle and then uh lucy gray the tribute grabs a microphone and just starts singing to the crowd a power ballad (laughs) (laughs) it's not a power ballad but just starts singing this song to like the entire crowd and it's obviously like on camera too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, she's crazy. And everyone watching is like, oh my God, she's crazy. She's nuts. She's nuts. Like, yeah. <laughs> Snow at least sees an opportunity, right? He's like, well, she at least has like charisma, right? Maybe I can work with that. I do think it's interesting comparing this to the original trilogy because like nobody was allowed to make a scene like that in Katniss's time. Yeah. This feels like very over the top. For, like, what would be allowed in the districts? Well, I think it, I think she's getting a pass because she's a bit of a celebrity in District 12 because she's a singer and performer. So I think it's kind of implied that the peacekeepers are, like, let her. Eh. But, I mean, would they not get, like, in huge trouble for just letting her do that? I know, if that's they what I mean. Be? I agree. Like, I think they try to explain it, but then also I don't think that quite holds up. Yeah. Uh, she is wearing this multicolored uh, dress that we are reminded of constantly in the book. Oh, my God. So many references to the rainbow ruffle dress. Yeah. And it's funny because in we were talking about how the Hunger Games are different in this version. They don't have like the stylists and all the different outfits. The style, the, the outfit you get reaped in is what you wear in the games. You never get a clothing change. No, you don't get a shower. <laughs> no. You don't get a, a, any speck of food. Nothing. Yeah. So she wears the dress for a really long time. So it's <laughs> mentioned constantly. Too many times, in my opinion. Uh, so Coriolanus is trying to figure out what to do, how to like get her on his side to trust him. So he decides to go to the train uh, where they are arriving, right? And once again, dissimilar to the original trilogy, because this is like only the 10th uh, Hunger Games, right? They show up in a cattle car and just get kicked out onto like the train platform. Yeah. Like just getting like, like roughened up and like nobody gives a shit about them. And Snow introduces himself. And once again... Uh, Lucy Gray is maintaining her kind of like crazed personality. <laughs> he gives her a rose and she's like, mommy used to bathe me in milk as a child and milk and roses. And then she like eats one of the petals and she's like, tastes, tastes like bedtime, tastes like bedtime. <laughs> yeah, she has this like really manic energy that's very all over the place. And Snow is trying to impress her, trying to get a reaction from her, explaining his role as her mentor being like, I'm going to sell you to the crowd. Maybe it'll help you win. Um, And she's sort of like, uh, prove it, whatever. And so he gets in the truck with them. Yeah. And then they're all dumped into the zoo together. And he's with her in the cage. Yeah, they put them on display at the zoo. Like, they're all just in this huge, like, I think it's like the monkey cages. Yeah. Minus the monkeys, obviously. And so once again... Huge difference from the uh, original books by the 74th Hunger Games. <laughs> um, and so Coriolanus, he's not he wasn't expecting to be on display himself either. So he kind of tries to own it. He 
introduces introduces Lucy Gray to the cameras that are there and is kind of like already getting ahead of everyone else, right? As far as like making her promoting her a favorite. Yeah. I think it's interesting too because we hear a little bit about Lucy Gray Baird here. And she talks about how she's part of the Covey, which is a group that used to travel between districts, um, never settling down necessarily in one place. And then she says during or after the war, they were rounded up and forcibly settled in District 12. This kind of reminds me of the Romani people a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's any type of equivalent of a group of people like this in, you know, North America. Um but it is kind of interesting. You know what else it makes me think of is Station Eleven. Yeah. Kind of the traveling caravan of like performers in a post-apocalyptic wasteland kind of going from place to place to perform. Yeah. I do think it's odd, though, that we have this person who's not really 12 being from 12. And but that's never really I mean, she clarifies that, but also that's not really I like it's not really a factor either. No, and Snow kind of uses this to imply that she's like better than the districts in the yeah. interviews and stuff. And even to himself and to his friends when he starts developing feelings for her romantically, he's like, "Oh, well she's not district. She's like separate from that. She's almost like capital, right?" Yeah. Which yeah. I kind of like I just don't really understand the point of her not actually being from district district 12. Yeah, I don't know. Like the the group that she's a part of, what are they called again? The Covey. The Covey. I mean, are kind of interesting, but also they just feel like performers and easily could have just lived in 12 anyway. Yeah, and it's almost like implying that the reason that like, Katniss's father sang songs was because the Covey had to be settled there and nobody sang songs anywhere else. <laughs> like It's like Footloose or something. Like we like, how did Katniss know songs, right? We have to have a whole what origin the, story. The origin of music. And I'm like, we don't really, we don't really need that. There is a lot of singing and a lot of songs in this book. Yeah. Like in the book especially. There's quite a few in the film as well, but like a lot in the book. Yeah. So let's go back to uh, school, right? <laughs> and th- th- we have like a few scenes, I think, in the book, but one big one where they're all sitting around and kind of brainstorming ideas of how to make the Hunger Games more appealing, at least get getting people to watch them again, right? And this is one of the scenes that Dr. Gall is involved in, and you're like, why is she Why here? is she at the school? Why, is why she- are they asking children to figure out yes. how to save the Hunger Games? Are they really that out of ideas? That Do they like- not have, like, a panel of, um, what's like a, what, what, what are those uh, groups called that come? Uh, like a think tank? Yes. <laughs> yeah, or like one of those, um... Groups that come in and like survey everybody and try oh, to get yeah. yeah try to get um some feedback but uh yeah I'm like why are we going to children for this I have no idea it feels very like I can understand maybe making children mentors to the tributes but also going to them for just general ideas maybe they're maybe this is why Dr Gall is wearing like four different hats because <laughs> they have nobody yeah. to do anything at the Capitol everybody died in the war everyone died. <laughs> And they're keeping up the facade of like, oh, no, like thousands of people work this bu- in this building. Meanwhile, Dr. Gall's just like running around doing everything. <laughs> doing everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it turns out that Snow has quite a few ideas, right? Uh, he's like, listen, we could have people bet on um, who's going to win. That would get people more involved. We could have people be able to send gifts to their choices in the arena, right, to help them, you know, 
give them better odds for surviving. He has a few other ideas, too. I'm trying to think if there's anything specific. That was, like, the big one, I think. They were also discussing about, like, not everyone really watches The Hunger Games. How Like, should you force people to watch them, and how would you do that? And there's kind of, like, debates back and forth, and, like, Sejanus is there and are just kind of arguing for, like, them being awful to begin with and not having them at all. Yeah. And then Dr. Gall's like, I like the way you think. Send a right type up a proposal for me. Yes. And uh, in the book, he's or she's like, have um you three students, Snow and two others, uh, write me a proposal and bring it to me tomorrow. And in the movie, one of the other students volunteers to help Snow write the proposal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's got homework. Homework is more important in this story than I was expecting originally. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they are doing this, and then meanwhile, they are trying to get food to their tributes who are still being held in the monkey cages. So they're going to the zoo, and they're giving food uh, to their respective tribute that they're in charge of. Yeah, which is crazy that they are not feeding them normally. Because yes. it's like, if they want a good show, you know what a good show is? Is healthy people killing each other, not half-dead people like just falling crawling. over on a rock and then just <laughs> passing out from hunger and dying. I, at first I thought like, oh, they're just not being fed enough. But it is almost implied that they're not being fed at all. Yeah. And it's days until the Hunger Games actually happens. Yeah. Maybe they're taking the name of it a little too literally. Maybe. The Hunger Games. <laughs> I, I think their uh, first solution for making them more entertaining would just be like, having them have food in their system when yeah. they do it, I think. Yeah. That's an easy fix, like, right off the top. Very simple. <laughs> um, we do get, though, our first victim of The Hunger Games, which is one of uh, Snow's fellow students who is, like, kind of taunting her tribute with food, like, on the other side of the bars, like, kind of pulling it away from them. In the book, she has, like, a knife with her that she was cutting cheese with or something. But I like in the film, she grabs the bottle, breaks it, and stabs her in the throat with it. Oh, my God. Either way, this girl gets her throat cut. Yeah. And it's it's brutal. And then two peacekeepers, like, shoot the tribute who did it. So first first victim of the Hunger Games, one of uh, Snow's fellow students. I mean, the whole, like, you can approach the tributes in the cages seems like a flawed idea to begin yeah, with. Yeah, not great, right? Also, it gives, like, the tributes a platform to, like speak out i mean i guess like the whole idea is that like you know they're still figuring out the hunger Games, so obviously it's not going to be a perfect system yet. no yeah but this seems once again like a very stupid idea <laughs> <laughs> i'm not asking for perfection but maybe let's eliminate these really obvious missteps yeah for sure yeah maybe like don't approach them with weapons or something that could be turned into a weapon right <laughs> and if they were just feeding them to begin with then the students wouldn't have to do it exactly exactly um so this is obviously causing a lot of chaos and confusion the hunger games are still going to go on though it doesn't really matter if they're short one of the tributes and one of the mentors right they're like whatever we're going to keep going uh we get a scene here where snow despite watching one of his fellow students get brutally murdered uh, finishes his, his assignment for Gaul. He's an A-plus student, Ian. He's dedicated. He's committed. And he turns in the paper. And what's her name, the student he was working with? Her nickname is Clemmy. Okay. Her full name is something ridiculous because all their names all are the fucking names, ridiculous. All the names, so long. Um, okay, I'll, uh, Clemmy is easy enough. So Clemmy is like, can I turn it in with you? Because, like, she didn't help at all. But Snow is like, yeah, sure. Like, here's what I wrote. And so they go to turn it in. 
Well, they, they do turn it in, and then they show up later to Dr. Gall about it. And it's funny because in the film, Clemmy like, tries to take all the credit. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, I wrote that, you know, like, just some ideas off the top of my head, you know. <laughs> and Dr. Gall is like, oh, well, why don't you reach into this pit of snakes uh, where I left your paper? And she explains that, like, oh, the snakes are used to people's scents. And, like, if your scent is... If they're familiar with it, they won't attack you. But this if- is very explicitly foreshadowing for something else later. <laughs> yeah. Also, she's in the film, especially see, she explicitly explains this to her. And then is like, why don't you reach in? And she's like, all right. <laughs> she just like, told no, you. She told you what would happen. You're going to get fucking bit. Yeah. And which she does. She gets bit. We never see her again in the movie. I guess that's true, isn't it? At least I didn't notice her in one of the scenes later. Yeah, because Snow asks, like, will she live? And she's like, "Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. In the book, we do see her later. She does recover from this bite, but it's very traumatic and uh, definitely setting up Dr. Gall as being very creepy and nefarious. Very just a mad scientist, right? Yes. Uh, Meanwhile, Snow and Lucy are bonding. He's bringing her snacks. They're talking about how they were both starving during the war. They're both orphans. It's very sad. Um, And Snow is like, oh, my God, she's so cute. And she needs me. And she's charming. And maybe I'm in love with her. Yeah. And in the film, I do think that the actors do a really good job. Tom Blythe and Rachel Zegler. Yes, Uh, Yeah, they have a a pretty good natural chemistry with each other in these scenes where they're like bonding. But it's also weird, especially in the book, I think, because we talked about how just like manic she comes across at the beginning of the story. Right. She's putting snakes in girls dresses. She's singing. She's eating flowers and being like, ah, (laughs) and now all of a sudden she's like. Oh, would you get me some food? Like, yeah. I, I'm, be, I'm being way over the top And she's of it. like, if only we had met in like a different uh, time. You seem like really nice, actually. Yeah. Like, you just seem like super cool. And like, I don't know. Like, maybe I like you. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm being unfair. But also, it just felt like she shifted in character so all of a sudden to being like, I don't know, just like Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah. Like, oh, she loves to sing and she's in this rainbow dress and like is really sweet. And I I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I think, too, um, in the original Hunger Games trilogy, so much focus is on appearances. Yeah. And kind of performing to cameras, right? The whole series, especially the first one, is about like how you're perceived, right? And always putting on a show and things, you know, not knowing if things are real or not. And so I think you maybe, as readers, naturally take that perspective into this book as well. Even though, you know, we're not seeing the most polished version of the games, it's still a performance, right? It's still being aired. You still have to manipulate and strategize in order to win, right? And so I think both of us were kind of like, Oh, she's she's manipulating him. She's playing him. I thought for sure that she was playing him. And I'm so kind of still upset that she wasn't because that would have been so great if like he fell in love with her. Right. And she's kind of like playing into that. And then the moment she wins and he's like, oh, my God, we can be together. If she's like, I fucking can't stand the sight of you. Yeah. Like, I hate you. Like, I 
wish like you make my skin crawl right because like, yeah you wouldn't have really blamed her like for playing that card no. to live yeah. right like i because he does end up cheating to help her right which i don't know like he has multiple motivations so it might not have only been because he loved her but i feel like that's a big part so like her plan if it was a plan would have worked right yeah and that would have been such a great reveal it would have made you feel bad for her. And it actually would have made you feel bad for him, too, honestly. Like, yeah. I actually would have still felt bad for Snow if you'd found out she was, like, manipulating him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been, like, really interesting. And it would have fit so well into the themes of, like, the original trilogy, right? Yes. Like, with Katniss and Peeta, in a, in a typical story like this where you're fighting for your life, no one has time for romance. No. Like, I, it comes across as so silly. But the great thing about the original Hunger Games was, like, they had to play that up to live to get sponsorships the fake dating the fake dating (laughs) like it was like it was so twisted but like so interesting right to like play into that that for this to just be a straightforward romance between them yeah felt like way too simplistic to me and i just did not believe that she would fall in love with him i believed that he would fall in love with her oh yeah right sure he's he's like I don't know, a little too, like, self-involved. So I feel like anyone who would, like, flatter him, he would, like, fall in love with, right? Absolutely. At least at this stage in his life. Um, But, like, there was really no reason for her to fall in love with him, and I didn't really believe it. No, and it's also frustrating to me, too, because, like, this is another big issue I had with this story, which is that Snow constantly has multiple motivations for the same thing. So, like... He wants to win the Hunger Games or his he wants his uh, tribute to win originally because he wants to plinth the prize and he needs it. Right. Yeah. To, like that's his motivation. And then he falls in love with his tribute. And now he still wants her to win the Hunger Games. Yes. It doesn't change. anything. No, it doesn't change anything. And so it's like not there's that, no conflict. There's no conflict there. And like he doesn't have any kind of internal conflict for, like, most of the story. And him deciding to, like, cheat just feels very natural. Yeah, that's, like, the only kind of active decision that he really makes. But it doesn't feel that radical. No. It's not like he was established to have some kind of strong moral code that he's, like, going against. No. So, like, I I feel, and there's other examples of that later, but, like, I don't know. There's never, like, a real conflict for him where he has to make some kind of, like, hard decision or choice. Mm -hmm. He's constantly just reinforced in what he's already going after to just keep doing that. To keep doing that thing. Like, same with the book. Originally, he's just after this vague scholarship, and then at some point... The Plinth Prize. Yeah, the oh, the Plinth Prize. And I'm like, it's the same thing. He still wants... He has wants the same motivation. The same motivation. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like that just kept happening again and again. Yeah, they um, end up touring the arena, right? And like we said, it's kind of like a coliseum, basically just like a stadium, right? Yeah. And it gets bombed. Okay, while I'm on a rant, does this make sense even? No. Like, it is just, it's a circular coliseum. Yeah. What do you have to look at? No, What is there to tour? No, I know. They're like, "We, we must tour it together before the games. Yeah. Yeah. And then it gets bombed. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I guess we didn't, like, we didn't. I guess we check. didn't check it. We didn't look. Also, and I guess it was just the rebels in the movie. They're like, "Oh, the rebels released a statement, and they specifically targeted it." And it's implied that they wanted to ruin the actual games themselves. Yeah. But in the book, it's like, "Oh, we don't really know what happened. I guess it was bombed." And then it's like, "All right, whatever. Moving on." I thought I'm like, "Oh, this is setting up some bigger mystery, right?" No. I'm like, "Is Doctor Gall behind this?" No. No. <laughs> it just got bombed. Yeah. And like multiple 
tributes died. Uh, a few of the students died. Yeah. What a clusterfuck. Yeah. Lucy does save Snow, though. He's trapped under some rubble, and she has a chance to escape, but instead she saves him. And this, once again, just kind of clinches his motivation yeah. that he already had, that he wanted to help her. He's like, okay, now I really have to help her. Yes. Because she saved my life. Um, And this kind of leads to... Uh, her so she has like an interview where she performs um she plays the guitar and she sings a song which gets her a lot of like attention and sponsors because Dr. Gall is like yeah in like the 2 days since you turned in your assignment I've already implemented all the changes that you suggested so we're doing the betting <laughs> we're doing the gifts that people can donate like I've got this like I'm running this show single handedly like- <laughs> handedly I do not sleep I have no one helping me This is like a half baked Elon Musk launch Yes Yes. To be fair, though, uh, this does kind of play into the drone thing that happens later. Oh, I know. So, like, <laughs> it is almost, like, realistic that they did implement this all like, in, like, too fast, in two days. And they didn't really, like, think it through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it leads to Snow, like we said, with him being like, I really have to make sure that she wins, showing up to her and kind of declaring his love for her at this time. Yeah. They end up kissing, actually. And he gives her... A, what is it, like a powder? Compact. Compact, thank you. Uh, Like a silver case for it. And he puts rat poison in it. And he's like, use this in the arena. Like, they won't take it off you. Say it's just a gift for me. But like, use this when you can. Well, and in the book, he just gives her the compact and it's empty. Oh, that's right. But he kind of just implies like, this might help you. Wink, wink. Replace your own powder. Um, In the movie, he just is straight up, here's rat poison. (laughs) Like, use it on the other tributes, right? Yeah. Uh, so clearly he has, he's crossing a line at this point. He's like really cheating now. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he also tells her about how with the bombing now, um, there's access to like these tunnels below the stadium. Yeah. Okay. So after this place is bombed, after they're like, whoops, we didn't have any guards here <laughs> to watch it. Then Snow just walks back in and yeah. like gets to just like look around. And I'm like, do you still not have anyone watching this place? There might be more bombs. There might be more bombs. Uh, yeah, this isn't in the book, actually. It's only in the film that he returns to the area to look at it. So but he, in both versions, there is this, like, new access in the games. Yes. Which changes the strategy because, like we said before, they it was just like throwing kids into a single area. Nowhere for them to run or hide. They have to fight to, to the death or die. Um, but now, because there's, like, tunnels... And access points that have been exposed now with the bombings and there's rubble everywhere. There's places to hide. There's places to strategize and recover. Um, And so this is kind of turning into the games we know from the original trilogy where people could kind of hunker down and hide and even like wait out the rest of everybody else like dying in order to win. Yeah. So it's the the day of the Hunger Games and all of the mentors get together in kind of the control room for the games. And uh, let's talk about like the set design and kind of like what these what the characters are actually doing. They're all at their own little like podiums where they they can control uh, the gifts that they want to send in the middle of uh, the games to their tributes. Right. Yeah. There's a real vintage vibe to this all. So super vintage. Like the TV room is very like almost like 50s, 60s looking. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of the Loki series that had that like yeah, you're vintage right. feel to it. This um, kind of um, modern aesthetic. Yeah. 
uh, or mid, mid-century modern, I mean. And yeah, it's, but like, it's funny because like, okay, this is also supposed to be the future, but it's like the past of the future is still our future. So mm-hmm. it's, where did this Yeah, where aesthetic? does this come from? <laughs> Maybe there was just a mid-century modern revival at some point <laughs> in, in design. I also think it's interesting. We see in the movie, um, the statue in the Capitol, the woman with the yeah. two swords with her hands up. I don't know why I really love that. Oh, do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really love that statue. And that image is used, like, in a lot of the motifs, like, on the screens when we see, yeah. like, the tributes. Oh, you're right, yeah. Yeah. Was that ever in the original movies, do you I know? don't remember it. I don't either because there was a lot of focus put on it, and I'm like, should I recognize this? I don't. It's cool. I also thought it was interesting seeing um, the Capitol and, like, seeing it kind of being rebuilt, right? Yeah. Because we have that, like, dirty flashback where everything looks, like, <laughs> super dystopian, yeah. right, in the war. But now, and seeing, like, snow kind of striding around, like, the city and things like that, we're seeing, like, it being kind of rebuilt and it's looking kind of nicer, but it's still, like, clearly in progress. It's seen a lot. And so it's sort of interesting to see the Capitol before it turns into, like, this glittering beautiful place yeah i have it a little bit later in my notes but can we talk about lucky flickerman here yes definitely we have to i mean so jason schwartzman in the film is so good in this role he's great he is perfect he has kind of a similar energy to stanley tucci's character but a little bit more not having it all together right yes i like he just he has so many great lines he brings such comedy to the role i love that he's also a weatherman yes (laughs) Because he's like, oh, I'm famous weatherman, Lucky Flickerman, And right? amateur uh, magician. Yes. In the book, he's really just a buffoon. Yeah. And honestly, it's really annoying in the book. It's super annoying. He's always bringing this bird that, like, talks or doesn't talk or does tricks or doesn't do tricks. I don't know. It's, like, not funny at all. And it's very jarring. Somehow it, it works in the film where, like, he is the only character that really has, like, comedy right or like brings any kind of comedic charm to the film and yet he still works so well like you can somehow cut from like child murder to him and delivering like a really funny line and it it works but something about the book it just got really obnoxious yeah uh, some of the great lines from the movie is uh lucky saying that's what happens when you do stuff (laughs) (laughs) about uh the tributes doing things to get donations yes I also love him at one point. It's like nighttime and clearly the games have gone on longer than he thought they would. And he's trying to make a reservation at a restaurant. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I would bet big money that most of the lines were improvised by Jason Schwartzman in this movie. Yes. Uh, get me a drink. Get me a drink right now. <laughs> and then also, wouldn't it be great if it was candy? <laughs> oh, it's not candy. <laughs> he's just, he, he's really great in this role. Yeah, adding a lot of really uh, needed comedy, I think, in these scenes and just chewing up the scenery just like Stanley Tucci did as, uh, what was his name? Caesar Flickerman? Caesar Flickerman, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, like, even in the original movies, like, other characters were funny at points. Yeah. Like, Woody Harrelson had a lot of good comedic bits and like even Katniss occasionally like would be Peta. yeah would be kind of like uh uh thick about something you know which would be funny uh but yeah I mean it's really all on Jason Schwartzman in this film yeah um so getting into like the hunger games of it all 
Um, We talked about how the arena has been drastically altered, right, in its structure. And so, you know, we have the beginning rush for weapons, right? And then we have Lucy eventually scampering into a hole and under these tunnels to get away from the main action. And, like, here's the thing. We have a whole, like, mini Hunger Games in this movie, right? But, like, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't feel like it does. And, like... It's so weird because we're used to seeing the Hunger Games in these movies, right? We saw two Hunger Games play out in the first two films and the first two books. And then, obviously, the war on the Capitol, the assault, is almost like its own little Hunger Games, right? And in this one, we also have a Hunger Games, but the only person we care about is Lucy. Yeah, like, there are a couple other people in it that you kind of know, but, like, not even really that well and you know lucy's gonna win right and we also know that this isn't gonna drag out like it did in the other books right it's not gonna take very long so it's like a sped up smaller version of the hunger games and ultimately it is interesting how oh this character kills this one and this character forms an alliance with this one and this person does this and this is how this one dies but ultimately like what i mean it doesn't really impact the story I mean, yeah, the thing about the original, because I mean, yeah, like Lucy Gray isn't the main character, right? I mean, her success benefits Coriolanus, but you're not as worried about her life because her life isn't what matters. It's like, oh, does Coriolanus get to go to college? That's like almost (laughs) as like what the actual stakes are for him. And in the original books, it's like you're introduced to the other tributes uh, kind of before the games, right? And there's Rue, this, like, really cute little girl. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, how's she going to be involved? Like, there are the big, scary uh, career tributes, right? Obviously like, PETA. Obviously PETA. And then, like, you kind of get to see how all these, like, people interact and bounce off each other, right? Like, there's a lot of setup beforehand and a lot of payoff because of that. But here, you kind of don't know what characters in the arena matter until they're really... Until they're dead. Like, there's Coral. Yeah. Well, I mean, until they're, like, killing people and then they're, like, the top person. Like, Coral is this, like, girl who's just, like, a really, like, brutal killer, right? Yeah, from 4, I think. Yeah, and Reaper, who, like, you kind of know who he is, but not really. Mm-hmm. And then you have a student for every tribute That is in the arena. And you're also kind of trying to keep track of them. But also, like, Suzanne Collins doesn't really ask you to do that. Like, she's constantly just saying, like, oh, the boy from District 3 did this, or the girl from District 3, and, like, oh, the mentor of the boy from District 3. Like, it'll sometimes throw a name in there. But ultimately, it's like, okay, there's now 48 characters involved in this, and she also whittled them down. Already. Already. Like, she already killed people off leading up to the Hunger Games, maybe to make it more manageable. But yeah, it just kind of all feels very low stakes. Yeah. And I mean, it is good. I think the action, especially in the movie, is interesting, right? Yeah. And there's a really lot of, like, great scenes involving, like, Lucy using the poison, right? And, like characters killing each other we have the character of jessup like dying tragically right but again like it doesn't really impact our main character which is snow yeah and it only kind of loosely impacts lucy because she ends up winning right yeah i mean i I agree the way it's filmed in the movie is pretty entertaining like there's a lot of wide-angled lens stuff that's like really cool to watch and it also helps to be able to put a face to the people right because at a certain point reading it you're just like reading a bunch of names yeah and it starts to just feel like I don't know, a chronicled 
list of what who killed what when and where and why and it's like all right all right yeah something very interesting involving snow does happen though during the games yes because uh so the character marcus who is one of the tributes he actually escaped when the arena was bombed and he was still like on the loose but they caught him and as a kind of message to the various districts, they kind of strung him up in the arena before yeah. the games even began. Like, obviously really horribly tortured and basically near death. Yeah. And one of the other tributes kind of mercy kills him. But this boy is who Sejanus was the mentor of. And Sejanus actually knew him from District 2 because yeah. that's the district he was from. They went to school together. It's just really, like, fucked up and sad, yeah. right? Um, so Sejanus is so upset by this that he ends up sneaking into the arena to perform um, like a ceremonial last rites on Marcus's body and maybe to like pull some kind of stunt in the arena by maybe like getting himself killed or something. Like he's in a desperate situation. And Dr. Gall gets Snow and is like, listen, there's your friend in the arena. And Snow is like, I mean, he's not really my friend. And <laughs> Dr. Gall's like, listen, you get in there and get him out or the whole games are going to be ruined. Like, the whole prize might be, like, not up for grabs anymore. Like, she really kind of um, tries to influence him to get Sejanus out. Yeah, this is another thing where it's, like, it's kind of a choice that Snow makes, but also it doesn't really feel like much of a choice. He's kind of forced into it. It also felt very contrived. Yeah. Especially in the book reading it. He's like, why don't you send peacekeepers? Oh, he might run from peacekeepers and all this stuff. Why don't you stop the games? Oh, well, we can't do that because it's it's all right. All right. You have to set you have to send snow. It in has to, get to him. be him. It has to be him. And he can't have people with him. So they freeze the feed for like an hour. Right. That's the amount of time he has before the cameras will pick up on them in there. So snow goes in and he's trying to reason with Shajana saying like, you know, they've frozen the feed. Even if you die here no one's going to know about it. It's not going to mean anything. Like, you have all this money and power. You should use it if you want to make change. He's actually saying, like, really good things. He is. He's, but he doesn't care about any of it. He's just saying whatever he has to say to get Sejanus out of the arena. Yeah. Eventually, he convinces him. But, of course, by this point, tributes in the arena have realized, like, oh, my God, there's mentors in here. Let's just kill them. Let's kill them. Let's kill them. We love killing. Because <laughs> we're district kids and we're crazy. So they attack they attack them as they flee, and Snow ends up having to fight uh, a, a child named Bobbin, and he ends up killing him. Yeah. Like, bludgeoning him to death. And they manage to get out. But this is, like, a very um, shocking and disturbing moment for Snow. Yeah. Yeah, obviously a turning point in his life. And Dr. Gall is very much, like, when she talks to him later, like... Oh, how was it in the arena? Like, <laughs> look, see what we turn into when we're faced with like a situation like this. Blah, blah, blah. Isn't this interesting? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> like, very, very evil energy. Yeah. Like, I get that you have to create the mindset that Coriolanus Snow is eventually like overtaken with. But also it feels so like flat or surface level like aha you see we're all just animals on the inside it's like you put them in a room and are yeah. making them kill each other what are you talking about yeah exactly you can't like extrapolate this to like the rest of the world anyway snow eventually during one of his talks with dr gall ends up in the lab and he hears about them potentially putting the snakes into the arena the snakes that he saw his student friend clemmy 
get attacked by. And because of Dr. Gall's exposition given earlier, he knows that if the snakes are familiar with a scent, they won't attack. And he's very, very concerned about Lucy Gray and his own prize, right? Yes. And so he puts a handkerchief in the snake tank that has Lucy Gray's scent on it because she used it. Yeah. Once again, all the pieces that led up to this, like Dr. Gall explaining how the snakes work, him happening to have like the handkerchief that Lucy Gray had given him, like all these pieces for him to cheat are kind of like very purposefully set up. So he does that, and then they drop a big bucket of snakes into the arena. And uh, they kind of immediately, like, swarm out over everyone, right? Uh, and in the film, this is, like, the finale, right? And in fact, Dr. Gall implies, like, hey, maybe everyone will die. Yeah, and I and don't we care. we won't have a victor, and that's fine, mm-hmm. right? Like, fuck them. So the snakes are, like, swarming over everyone, and this is pretty much the same in the book as well, except not everyone else dies. But this is where... Lucy Gray saves herself with the power of song. Yeah, but it's really the handkerchief scent. But it's really the handkerchief Yeah. Scent. But everyone thinks it's the power of song. I gotta say, Rachel Zegler has an amazing voice. She sold this scene. Oh my God. When we read it, we were like, oh my God, come on. This is so cheesy. It's so cheesy. Like, she's surrounded by snakes and just singing this beautiful song. Like, ugh. But Rachel, Rachel Zegler, like... She's she seems scared, but kind of angry and like this raw emotion. Yeah, this deep voice. And uh. she made me believe that she would just start singing. Right. In yeah. this Crazy scenario. Like that's a moment where like the movie was able to make something work so much better than I think the book did. Yeah. And I felt that way about all of her singing scenes. Like they were yes. all so good because she just has such power and uh, presence in her voice. Yes. Really. I really enjoy yeah, her. her singing is phenomenal phenomenal uh i did like how this kind of ended the movie because it's like it is a climactic end but it's not just two people bludgeoning each other to death you know what i mean like uh but it is exciting right in the book uh i think only reaper is alive after this point yeah and she managed we don't realize this at first but she managed to poison him and he's dying slowly and then she starts like He's crazy, and she starts getting him to, like, run around the arena to, like, make him die faster, and then he just falls over dead. Yeah, I think the snakes are more impressive. It's a better... I I respect her wanting it to end in a different way, because, like, a lot of Hunger Games probably would end this way, with someone just, like, falling over dead from, like, injuries or exhaustion or something like that. So I kind of appreciate, like, almost the anticlimax of that. But I do think the film worked really well with the snakes as a finale. Yes. So Lucy wins, but Snow cannot celebrate it because immediately after she's won, he's presented with evidence of his cheating by Dean Highbottom, who hates him. He, who hates him with a passion. He's like, we got you. Uh, they have evidence of the compact, which had rat poison in it. And they also have evidence of the handkerchief that was found with the snakes. Yeah. And Handkerchief had his dad's initials uh, stitched in it, and they knew the compact was his, too, or his mom's. I kind of liked in the movie they frame it as, like, something from his mom and something from his dad. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I, I don't know what relevance that has necessarily, but I thought it was kind of an interesting way to frame it. Yeah. Dean Highbottom is like, uh, since I'm in charge of handing down your punishment, uh, your punishment is you're being expelled, and uh, you can either join the Peacekeepers or... What? I don't think there was a choice. I think he was like, I'd be afraid to turn down the peacekeeper thing 
to know what else he would do to me if I didn't do that. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, an implied threat. Like, you have to do this. Yeah. So Snow is now joining the Peacekeepers, and his life in the capital is over. It's very interesting because we're told that when you're a peacekeeper, which is questions that we had yes. in the original trilogy, we're like, who are the peacekeepers? Where are they from? What are they doing? It's a mandatory 20-year stint, which is crazy. It, for everyone? Yeah. Okay. I thought that was maybe just like his deal. No, okay. it's a mandatory 20-year stint, and a lot of people from the district sign up as well as some people from the capital. But if you're from a district signing up, they send you to a different district. Which makes sense. I think that's what we were saying before. Yes, we were theorizing Yeah, that. because yeah. like we're like, the capital is all about like the opulence and not working and like having AVOXs do everything. They wouldn't be signing up to be police officers in other districts, yeah, right? Yeah, unless um, they were really poor. Unless they were desperate or yeah. something. Yeah, it makes sense to like have someone from 12 sign up to be a peacekeeper and send him to two or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, like, I, I feel like this is all kind of like retroactively being written you know mm-hmm. uh yeah so he is a peacekeeper he, he in the film he pays someone off to be sent to 12 because he kind of wants to find lucy gray and he's not there long before sejanus shows up yes apparently he was also punished for going into the arena uh unsupervised and so now he has to be a peacekeeper too. i don't believe like his dad is so wealthy that it feels like i'm not sure i believe that he would have had the same punishment I mean, he went into the arena, right? Yeah. During the Hunger Games. But, like, his dad is, like, fucking Jeff Bezos. Yeah. You know? Like, I feel like, I mean, unless the dad was sick of him and is, like, send him away, maybe. But, yeah, so they're now stuck together. His best friend, Sejanus. Yes, BFFs. BFFs. BFFs forever in 12. But this is, like, such a interesting transition for the story. For sure. The pace just gets totally shifted here in both the book and the movie, right? Because we just came off the high of like reading about or watching the Hunger Games happen. Yeah. Right? And we're like, oh my God, this is like the end. This is the finale. And then it's like, just kidding. Here goes Snow off to be a peacekeeper in District 12. And you're like, wait, what? Yep. And you're like, where, where is this going? There's like a third of the story left. What's happening? And, you know, I heard Francis Lawrence talk about possibly splitting this movie up into two. Mm. But I was like, where would you do it? Like, if you did it here. There wouldn't be any movie left. Well, yeah, the first movie would be like this sci-fi action film set in like a futuristic city, right? And then the second movie would be like this quiet indie drama, like with kind of sci-fi undertones, like about a boy signing up for the military and like... Appalachia country yeah. it would be like so radically different and like it is radically different even in within this film yeah yeah like part of me respects the odd pacing that like it's not going for a standard three act structure three act structure thank you that like a normal movie would go for but I also don't know if it works yeah the movie's really long and the book is really long too over 500 pages and I I definitely will say the pacing did feel a little bit weird, especially when you get to this part and you're like, you're looking about how much book you have left. Yes. And you're thinking about how much time you have left in the movie and how much you've already seen. And you're like, what could possibly happen next? Well, and the setup for him going to 12 is like, this is your life now. Like, he doesn't have a goal. He doesn't have something he's trying to, like, specifically do. It just feels like a reset on, like, the whole story. Yeah. And you don't even know if he, like, 
learned anything from the Hunger Games no. or from being in love with Lucy Gray or anything. Yeah. Like, has he changed at all even? Unclear. Uh, he gets to 12. He and Sejanus settle into military life and he is reunited with Lucy. Her and the rest of the Covey perform on Saturdays at the Hob, which we know from the original trilogy is kind of this abandoned mining warehouse where um, the black market takes place, where Katniss sells some of the food that she hunts and gathers. And this is a place where the miners and the peacekeepers can kind of come and drink and listen to music after living their very hard life in District 12. Yes, this is where they go to drink their unspecified clear liquor. White liquor. Moonshine. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But Snow and Lucy are reunited and they seem to be mostly happy and in love, I guess. At this point, Adina, I was still holding out hope that she hated him. No. Because I'm like, they haven't talked since she won the Hunger Games. Maybe he'll show up and she'll just slap him in the face. But no, they end up just making out in a field together. Yes. Classic. Uh, And they're like, oh, we can live our whole lives here together now and everything's perfect and nothing will happen in the next 150 pages. <laughs> um, we are introduced to the hanging tree, Ian, the hanging tree of old that we've heard of. Ye old hanging tree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The hanging tree of song and legend from the original books. Uh, yeah. It's just a big tree where they hang people. Yeah. They hang this one guy because he was like causing some trouble in the mines was maybe a rebel. Um, And we see a very disturbing thing happen where um, he's hung and his last words are repeated over and over by the Jabber Jays that are circling around because we were kind of introduced to them earlier that the Jabber Jays were released into the wild. And of course, from the original trilogy, we know that the Jabber Jay and the Mockingbird had a mutt type bird between them, the Mockingjay. Yes, and they can continue to reproduce, whereas the Jabberjays are all male or all female. I forget which. Male. And they all died out eventually, but the Mockingjay continues to live on, kind of as a accidental sign of rebellion to the capital in the original trilogy. But here we still have Jabberjays, and they are just repeating the dying cries of people that they hang in the tree. It's pretty messed up. Very disturbing, but uh, very effective, right? Yes. We learn that Lucy's ex- Billy Tope is uh, causing some drama, right? We find out that basically her name was really intentionally drawn in Hunger Games because this guy that she was dating started to date the mayor's daughter. And the mayor's daughter and Lucy found out about his, like, two-timing, right? And the mayor's daughter said something to her father to get him to pull Lucy's name. I love that we are only going to refer to her as the mayor's daughter. And yes. I refuse to learn her actual name. Mayfair. I don't care, Adina. She is the mayor's daughter. Imagine being the mayor <laughs> and then ma- naming your daughter Mayfair. Mayfair the mayor. Mayor Mayfair. <laughs> yeah, this is like, I don't know. We're being, I mean, I, some of this is told to us earlier, I think, at least yeah. in the film, I remember. But now it's becoming like the actual plot of the story. And suddenly I'm like, to what end? What is this? What are we doing here, everyone? Like, what is going on? Yeah. There's kind of this like two timing hillbilly love triangle thing. Well, and like Snow is like jealous over Billy, but Lucy's like, oh, I'm not into him anymore because he betrayed me. But then Snow is like, oh. I want to, like, kill him. I want to, like, somehow fuck with him. You know, it's just, like, a lot of boring stuff, right? Yeah, they get in, like, an actual fist fight in the film during, like, a a brawl that erupts in the hob. Yes. Meanwhile, Sejanus, 
who was so optimistic about his new life in the districts, is quickly becoming disillusioned again with his life. He's like, oh, I thought it would be better in the districts being like among the people. And then he's like, oh, capitalism ensnares us all. He's like, maybe being a cop isn't like the best way to help people. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, maybe that isn't actually effective. Maybe in the that's long not term. the way to go for my life. I mean, to be fair, he like wanted to eventually become a medic, but then he's like, well, also to be a like for there to be a need for a medic, there needs to be a war, and I don't want a war. Well, basically, he's like, oh, it's really hard to become a medic, and I'm like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? He so quickly is like, uh, actually, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like really difficult. I'm actually gonna start plotting with some rebels in the district instead. And Snow is like, dude. Be careful. Like, you don't know what you're doing. This is really bad. Like, think. And even though you agree with Sejanus, like, wanting to help people, what he's doing is stupid. He's just good. Yeah, he's being so stupid about all of it, right? Yeah. Uh, We get a scene of Snow and Lucy Gray going to the lake together. The lake of legend from the original trilogy that Katniss would go to sometimes. Yes. I feel like it all at once we get like a lot of references to the original trilogy all of a sudden. Yeah, this is like the scene where they're like, okay, the lake, we're gonna, um, oh, they also established Lucy Gray's song right here. Yes. Um, they mentioned the Katniss plant. Oh God, the way this line is delivered, especially in the movie, where they're like looking at a plant and Snow is like, oh, what is that? She's like, oh, some people call it swamp root or something like that. But I prefer his other name. Katniss. And Snow has this reaction as if that means anything. Like kind of like, oh, like looks around. What is like, that? That means nothing. That's no, just. You don't understand this. Your reaction should be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like It means nothing. It's just a word to you. I think in the book, they also talk about the Mockingjays here. Yeah, they talk a lot about that. And like the Hanging Tree song mm-hmm. comes up. And yeah, it just it feels like a lot all at once. And also, I think it's kind of a disservice to the original trilogy because we we talked before about like how big is District 12, right? Yeah. Like. I know they're one of the smaller districts, but they're supplying coal to, like, all of the capitals, so it has to be pretty big, right? Yeah. But it already felt small in the original books, and this is just making it all feel smaller. Like, oh, there's the Hob, and there's one lake near us. Yeah. I'm like, aren't you the size of, like, three states? Like, I know. in North America? Yeah, and, and also that same thing I said about, like, the singing, right? Like, yeah. the songs, the hanging tree comes up later, there's another song in the meadow, the, the meadow song that they sing, and it's like, we have to have origins for all these songs, and I'm like, people can just have a song that they sing. It's not like the Han Solo movie where we have to know where does his gun come from, where does his vest come from, and it's not, it's not that bad, but, like, I don't know, anytime it cropped up, it just felt, like, really forced and unnecessary. I totally agree. I also I just have to read part of this, Ian, because when they're singing the Lucy Gray song, yeah. because she's named after a song, everybody in the Covey is named after a song, which is totally on brand for them. We have this really weird commentary from Snow during the song. So I'm going to skip the parts where they're actually because they just type out the song. There's a lot of song lyrics and actual singing in the movie, but a lot of song lyrics in the book. So they're singing this song, and it's actually based on a Wordsworth poem. It's been edited a bit for the purposes of this book. But um, so this is Snow's commentary on the song as it's going. Okay, so there was a little girl who lived on a mountain, 
and apparently had trouble making friends. Some song. And she died. How? He had a feeling he was about to find out. (laughs) More song. Ah, lots of nonsense words, but she got lost in the snow. Well, no wonder if they sent her out into a snowstorm. And then she probably froze to death. More song. Oh, good. They found her footprints. Happy ending. It was one of those silly things, like that song Lucy Gray sung about a man they thought had frozen to death. They tried to cremate him in an oven, but he only thawed out and was fine. Sam somebody. More song. Wait, what? She vanished into thin air? More song. The song ends. Oh, a ghost story. Ah, boo. So ridiculous. Well, he'd try hard to love it when he saw the covey tomorrow. But really, who named their child after a ghost girl? Although if the girl was a ghost, where was her body? Maybe she got tired of her negligent parents sending her into blizzards and ran off to live in the wild. But then, why didn't she grow up? He couldn't make sense of it, and the white liquor wasn't helping. It reminded him of the time he hadn't understood the poem in rhetoric class, and Livia Cardu had humiliated him in front of everyone. What a dreadful song. Maybe no one would mention it. No, they would. Maud Ivory would expect a response. So he'd say it was brilliant and leave it at that. What if she wanted to talk about it? Coriolanus decided to put it to Sejanus, Sejanus. who'd always been good at rhetoric, just to see if he had any thoughts. I'm like, what the fuck is this commentary? (laughs) Uh, boo. Ew. A ghost story. Oh, I bet she's like, what? Like, none of that has to be. Is it supposed to be funny that he's like. So dumb and doesn't get it? About like music? It's one weakness, Ian. I like he's not like that. In any other way. It's so silly. In the whole story. And then suddenly he's hearing a song and he's like, I don't get it. I don't understand. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> silly. The The song does play a part, though, in the end of the story, which I do like that aspect. Definitely. Um, so Sejanus is up to his antics with the rebels and he confesses his plan to help the rebels um, and this girl escape. And they want to actually go north and just, like, live free of the capital. Snow has a chance because they're working with the captured Jabberjays at the time when Sejanus is telling him his plot to record it in the Jabberjay, and he does. Which, I, it's interesting to see how they actually, like, used the Jabberjays, because we know Jabberjays can, like, repeat human language, and that's just generally how the capital spied on people. But here we get, like, a demonstration that there's, like, a remote that sends out, like, a signal that you can't hear but birds can hear, and it actually, like, signals to them to start recording, and then you can, like, play it back. And, like, it's kind of interesting in the book, and it works. In the film, it just looks like you have a remote for a bird. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, is the bird a robot, or is it a bird? It's very weird. They don't explain it at all. All of a sudden, Viola Davis is just pointing a remote at a bird and just (laughs) getting it to, like, start playing. But yeah, so uh, Snow takes this chance to, like, record Sejanus confessing. And then he just sends the bird to the Capitol. Yeah, I think it's kind of a way of, like, he's kind of taking a half step to, like, turn Sejanus in. Like, he's not really going to people, but he's kind of like, I'll just send this along. And Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a way of, like, making himself feel not quite as shitty about it. I'm not but sure. But why record him in the first place? Yeah, I mean, he kind of talks about it, it's like, almost like a reflex, like he just kind of started doing it. But I don't know if that, I think it worked well enough in the book. I don't know how well it plays out in the film, though. Yeah. Um. In the meantime, though, <laughs> he still has time to kill someone, the mayor's daughter. Oh, wait, there's a murder. Hold on. 
he notices during one of the Hobbs music performances that Sejanus sneaks away. He follows them into this shed that the music group also happens to use as like their break room. And there's an arms deal going off. Yeah. And like there's a guy. What what was his name? Spruce. Spruce. Have we met Spruce before? No. Okay. Because when I'm reading this and because Spruce shoots someone too. And I'm like, wait, I'm like, who's he? Who's Spruce? I'm like flipping through my book. I'm like, I don't remember that name. Um, But anyway, God, it's so complicated to explain. Snow shows up. He's trying to like talk them out of doing what they're doing. The mayor's daughter is there. Lucy's there. Then Lucy shows up and Billy Billy Tope is like, oh, Lucy's coming with us because she's my gal. He says this right in front of the mayor's daughter and the mayor's daughter is like, what the fuck? How dare you? I'm going to go tell my dad. I'm turning you all in. I'm turning you all in. And then Snow's like, well, I guess we have no choice. And he pulls a gun out and shoots her like in the back. Yeah. And then Billy's like, oh, I'm going to like tell everyone what you did. And then Spruce shoots Billy. (laughs) And Spruce was like, I didn't like him anyway. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this is a. So now we have like a double. This is a lot of escalation. This is so this is a lot going on. So then they all agree to like leave and Spruce is going to take the guns and dispose of them because they're covered in their DNA. This is something that I found really annoying because I'm like, what? F- fingerprints, okay. Yeah. Did you like spit, spit on that? in the gun? Yeah. Like, did you hock a loogie in the gun? Is this just capital technology? But like, that's not even how DNA really works. Like, if your DNA could be on a gun just from handling it in that way, a lot of people's DNA would probably be on that's it. That's true. It wouldn't like explicitly like put you put the crime on you right but for some reason in this scenario it it does yes in this scenario the gun will immediately implicate him in this murder yes so sejanus and uh snow are trying to lie low after this incident and they're like okay maybe everything will be fine like whatever but uh snow feels like he's running out of time because he knows that that gun is out there And once they find it and once his DNA is traced to it, he'll be hanged. Yeah. So it feels like there's a ticking clock element. Meanwhile, he he has applied to go to officer school, officer school in District two, because he's like, well, maybe I can make a name for myself within the military and that can get me like back into capital, back into high society. Like this is my this is my course of action now. And he finds out that he did really well on the test and they're going to send him to District 2. And he's like, great, but it doesn't matter because when they find that gun, I'm dead. Yeah. And then in the midst of all this craziness, all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, we got the Jabberjay that you sent uh, and we're hanging Sejanus. Yep. And then he's hung and that's it. It is. It happens so fast and it's just like so disorienting. I don't get why we needed both the Sejanus recording aspect going on at the same time as, as the murder, murder. like he could have been caught for that yeah which they're both kind of related but like not really and it's, and then him snow having to betray him specifically yeah i don't know it's very overly and unnecessarily complicated yeah and very muddied and sad it's I very mean, sad you knew that poor sejanus was gonna get it at some point right yeah i guess i just don't know what we're supposed to ultimately take away from or what Snow takes away from Sejanus as a character? Yeah. Is it that, like, oh, he was naive and optimistic and that will only get you killed? Like, is that the story we're supposed to get away from, take away from Sejanus? I'm not totally sure. It's not clear, like you said, because Snow is sad and there's a scene of him, like, crying afterwards. 
But like, it's also like his fault. And he's sort of like, well, it was bound to happen eventually. And I'm like, is this just to show us that he's becoming cold? Because I think we could have done it in a different way. Yeah, like it's a decision that he made, but also his reasons for making it aren't super obvious to us. Like even in the book where you have his like inner monologue, he's kind of like, ah, it was just kind of an impulse decision yeah. to do it. And then he's kind of just justifying it after the fact later on. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really feel like he had any kind of pressure applied to him to do it. Other than Sejanus was probably going to fuck up at some point and maybe you drag him with him. Yeah, covering his tracks, I guess. Um, basically Lucy and Snow at this time decide that they're going to actually leave and head up north because Lucy is under suspicion because her ex-boyfriend and the woman that he is newly with both showed up dead. So obviously a lot of suspicion is coming onto her. And then Snow is like, they're going to find the gun with my DNA on it any minute now. So I have nothing really here for me anymore. And Sejanus is dead. Uh, let's just leave. Let's just go off together. It'll be very romantic. I find it weird that Lucy Gray was so not bothered by the fact that Snow shot Mayfair Mayfair in the back. Yeah. As she was like running away. I'm like, that's dark. That's a red flag. That's really like, I get you were in a tough position, but that's. You know, I don't know. That should have been more of a point of contention. For sure. And in the book, they have all kinds of discussions about the capital, the districts, the Hunger Games, where it's very clear that Snow has some very problematic views. And she's still like, oh, I trust you so much. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Why would you? <laughs> so they they're, they have decided that despite not really being together for that long, they're going to flee north together and spend the rest of their lives with each other. Maybe only with and each other. And only with each other. Yeah. And it takes them about a half hour of walking northward before Snow is like, I've made a huge mistake. Yeah. He's like, I hate the woods. <laughs> I, hate, I hate the woods. I hate like fishing and like digging for worms. This all sucks. Like, I I, I hate Lucy it's Gray. It's humid out here. It's humid. Like, he changes his mind so quickly. Yeah. This it, is in the book. Like, yeah, obviously he probably is regretting it in the movie too. But in the book, he's literally just like, oh, this sucks. I mean, even in the film, you suddenly feel it feels like the end of The Graduate where suddenly these two people are together and they're like, oh, wait. Hold on a minute. And you you just feel like the air being sucked out of the room, like with them, you know? Yeah. They stop at the lake and there's a cabin there. And as they're kind of it's it's raining, and so they're kind of like making a fire and they're gonna have some food. Uh Snow discovers the guns there. So the secret stash of ammunition and guns that Sejanus and Spruce were stockpiling for their trip to escape has been stored here. Well, because Spruce, who had hid them, also was killed. Yeah, he so was hung. So he, he couldn't be asked where he put them anyway. So he found them, and it's like, oh my god, as long as I just, like, throw these in the lake? Which, why didn't Spruce do that to begin with? The lake is right there. I don't know yet. Why he's like, oh, I'll just, I'll hide them. Maybe he thought he could come back for them. Maybe, I guess. And simultaneously, things are getting weird between him and, uh... Lucy Gray, they had a conversation earlier where Snow kind of fucked up and is like, oh, I wish I hadn't killed three people. Yeah. He just had to say a number. And she's like, I thought you only killed two people. And he's like, um, I meant 
my past self. I killed myself, my past version of me. And, and he's like, nailed it. Yeah. And she's like, very suspicious of him. Yeah. And now they're at the cabin and they found the guns. And Lucy Gray is like, I'm going to go out and dig up some of the Katniss root. And he's like, but I thought you said it wasn't in season. And she's like, oh, well, it's been a couple weeks. And he's like, but it's raining. And she's like, no, I'll be right back. And, yeah. and she leaves. And so now, like, this paranoia is building up. And I kind of like in the film how weird it is and almost, like, subjective from Snow's point of view. Like, she's very, like, oh, well, now that you have the guns, the only loose end is me, huh? Yeah. And when she's leaving and he's like, where are you going? And she's like, nothing. You know, yeah. like, it really plays into that paranoia in the vibe. Yeah. And in the book, it's more just like he starts thinking about it and he's like, oh, if I get rid of the gun then I can just go back to my life. I can go be in officer's school again. No one will ever know what happened. Lucy is like the only one who really knows what I've done. This is the only point in, I think, the whole story where the two things that he wants are now different or the two things that he can go after, right? Yeah. He can maybe go back to his life in the Capitol with the guns disposed of, but Lucy Gray is leaving and she's not going to go back. So now he has to make a choice. Go with Lucy Gray or go back to the Capitol. And he makes his decision in like two seconds, Adina. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to get rid of the guns It also and go feel back. Like, feels like Lucy already made the decision for him. Yeah. With her sneaking off. Maybe, yeah. I guess that's true. So he wanders outside, and he's still clutching one of the guns. And he's like, I just want to talk to Lucy. I just want to talk to her. He's like, Lucy, where are you? Pointing his gun around. <laughs> I, I do once again think this like works kind of in the movie. Like it's almost funny like him walking through the woods with this gun and just being like, Lucy, where are you? Like he's going like full Jack Nicholson almost, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, he finds a scarf on the ground and it's the scarf that he gave her that was his mother's. And when he goes to pick it up, there's a snake under it and it bites him. Yeah. And he's like, what the fuck? And he's like, oh my God, is that poisonous? And he's like, Lucy, did you leave that for me? And he's like yelling into the woods mm -hmm. and he's just like unraveling rapidly. Yes. He sees her at one point and shoots at her. And it looks like she falls, but then when he goes to find her, she's gone. Yeah. And then she's singing, but then it's like, is it the Jabberjays only? Yeah. And then he's freaking out and shooting into the trees at birds, and it's full-on crazy mode. <laughs> and, and then he just decides, like, well, she'll leave no matter what, and I'll just return to District 12 and to my life, basically. I, I, I think that... Um, I don't know. In some ways, the unraveling of their relationship is a little too quick. It's way too fast in both versions. Yeah. I think the movie gets away with it more because it's able to create more atmosphere in the situation. And I think that's an advantage of film in general. I think movies can more easily wrap you up in a vibe. Yeah. Where in a book, when you're reading it and the text is kind of like explaining it to you, you have more time to be like, wait, what? Wait, why would he do this? Like, is that really what he's doing? Like, why? I don't believe this, right? Like, you can you have more time to like question. question. But in the film, it's just kind of like wrapping you up in the, the, the mood and the vibe. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, the movie just gets away with it more easily. Yeah, it does pull this scene off. But yeah, it's kind of just confusing. And then we're like, did Lucy Gray die? We find out later that nobody like hears from her again. So we don't really know. And it's like her song, right? Where it's this ghost girl, you know, did she escape and head up north? Did she get shot by when he was going crazy and just shooting up the forest? Yeah. Right. I mean, I will say that like, even though I don't like 
how simplistic Lucy Gray's character is throughout. Like we called her like a manic pixie dream girl. And I think that's kind of fair. Yeah. That being said, though, like Suzanne Collins kind of like doubles down on that here and is like she's like a sprite. Yeah. She's like a spirit almost, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe she's never even been here. Right. And I'm like, all right, like that's interesting. Yeah. She's already such not a character in a lot of ways that to kind of like turn her into like almost the supernatural is interesting. It kind of works. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, even though I don't necessarily think the road to this point was worth it. Like, I think this moment was like really interesting how it, and I was even wondering, and this is kind of explained in the book, but not in the film. When he got bit by the snake, I'm like, is he hallucinating? Yeah. Like, is he poisoned and just like actually really losing his mind here? The book clarifies the snake wasn't poisonous, but we don't get any explanation in the film. No. Yeah, and so he goes back and he gets on the train to go to officer officer school in two, and they're like, oh, change of plans, you're going back to the Capitol. And Dr. Gall shows up and is like, how was your little vacation in District 12? In the movie, she just says like, oh, you passed all my tests. You're wasted in the peacekeepers. You're going to study under me in university now. But in the book, she's like, oh, I planned for you to go. Yeah. To District 12. It's part of like the education I wanted for you. Like it's it's similar in both versions where she's like, aha, this all went according to my plan. And I'm like, plan for what? What was your plan? Did you intend for me to be a part of like a double homicide and like maybe run for my life with my girlfriend only to like turn on her? Yeah. And she's like, ha ha ha, you'll never know. Anyway, you're my student now. You're my pupil. Yeah. I mean, he gets his life back, essentially. He gets the plinth prize. The plinths kind of like adopt him because they're like, oh, you and Sejanus were best friends. And I know you did everything you could for him. Of course, they don't know about Snow betraying him. Um, and so they're like, we'll take care of your education. We'll, we'll give you money for stuff. Um, And he's studying under Dr. Gall to be a game maker. There's a really good line in the film. And I think the film has a lot of good dialogue and a lot of good subtle writing where he's about to leave and he's looking all dapper again. Like he's going to leave for like uh, to have a meeting or something. And he looks good. And he asks Tigris, how do I look? And this goes back to an earlier conversation where Tigris mentioned like when she looked at their dad, she only saw hate in his eyes. Snow's dad. It wasn't her dad. Yeah. And when he asks in this moment, how do I look? She says, you look just like your dad. Mm-hmm. And I love that double edge like response, right? That he's kind of lost his soul at this point. And she knows it. Yeah, I, I think that's I think there's a lot of good moments in the writing like that, where if you're paying attention, you get the implications of what's being said. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have a few final scenes, right? We have um, Snow kind of living his dream at university and then. We have him talking to Dean Highbottom. Yeah. And just talking about Sejanus and Lucy and the whole thing. And Dean Highbottom admits to him that, yes, he did come up with the idea for the Hunger Games, but it was only when he was super drunk with Snow's dad. And they used to be best friends. And like the next morning, Snow's dad like writes it up gives it to Dr. Gall and is like, oh, yeah, Dean came up with this and kind of like forced this Hunger Games situation into existence, which is interesting. And I guess that's the reason that Dean Highbottom hates Snow. But it's this is so weird, though, because, like, it's implied that his dad took the idea, right, that 
Dean, Dean Highbottom still got but credit. But he got the credit. Yeah. People are like, oh, Dean Highbottom invented the Hunger Games. But I'm like, but, but the dad was the one who like took. Forced him to do it? Yeah. It's it's very odd. I don't quite get. Like, I don't know. It's this kind of reveal at the end of the story. But like, to what end? I, I don't... think just showing like their similarities, right? Snow being very similar to his father in like helping to bring the Hunger Games to life, I guess. Yeah. And then Snow plants some morphling that he's poisoned um, in a place where Dean Highbottom can get it. And in the movie, we actually see Dean Highbottom being poisoned to death. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, once again, Peter Dinklage is is so great in this role. Uh, Yeah. So now his career as a poison expert has taken off. He's going to become the future president of Pan Am and just be a total psychopath. Yeah. Uh, what have we learned? Ian? What what have we learned on this journey? I don't know if we learned anything. Yeah. I don't know if this story is an explanation for why Snow became the way that he did. No. I mean, you can't. It's hard to distill that into like just one part of someone's life. Yeah. You know, I mean, and also like, I don't know. Doing a villain origin story is so complicated because you're like, I want you to root for them and then be sad that they turn out to be a villain, even though you know that they turn out to be a villain. Yeah. So it's like your investment is always like going to be a little bit off, I think. Yeah. Like you're you're it's an uphill battle to make you want to like this person to begin with and then understand why they went the direction they did. Not that you have to agree with it, but you have to understand from their perspective why they feel the way they do. Yeah. And I just don't know if the story ever did that. And like, honestly, Snow's arc is kind of odd to me. Like, I felt like there would be so many better ways to do it. Like, it's weird that he had, he struggled when he was young, right? They didn't have enough food. They lived in basically poverty. Yeah. And yet he doesn't have... And, and at points, he shows empathy towards the districts and the children in the Hunger Games. But then that's kind of just dropped. And I'm like, shouldn't he have more empathy towards them than he shows? Yeah. Like, I don't think it reverses that enough in the course of the story for you to understand why he would still want to send these kids to their deaths, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, the story gives us a lot of reasons why he should think the opposite, but, like, not enough reasons why he would go back on that. It's really weird comparing this book to the original trilogy. And I know it's supposed to be different, but I mean, just in writing style, it's very, very separate. I mean, the original Hunger Games trilogy is written in first person from Katniss's I perspective, and it's written in the present tense, which has a really interesting flair and really kind of grounds you in the immediacy of the moment. And this story is told from a third person close perspective of Coriolanus Snow, right? Centering on him as the main character, but it's in third person and it's in the more traditional past tense, right? More what we're familiar with reading. So it feels very separate from the original trilogy. And also it's just so rambling and the plot is kind of all over the place. The pacing is really off. I felt like the trilogy was so tight. It, it was. And the pacing was just perfect in those Books, I mean, the third book gets a little crazy, but like in general, it was just very well plotted and the action kept you moving and you really understood the characters really well and their motivations and how they played off each other. You knew the stakes, you knew the themes. This book just feels like a mess. It really does. And 
I don't know. You would have thought her writing this like a snow prequel story. Like, well, she must have a really clear vision for it or a really clear idea like that. What? That's not even the first place you'd think to go to. Right. Yeah. But like, I don't know. It just feels so like such a mishmash of ideas. I I just don't get Snow's arc at all. It doesn't feel like he's an active character for, like, most of the story. And, like, the references to, like, the original trilogy just kind of seemed, like, over the top to me. Yeah. Right? It just seemed like it was like, oh, remember this? And I'm like, yeah, we, yeah, we yes. all remember the Mockingjays. We all remember <laughs> Katniss, right? Like, we know. So, uh, I don't know. And this is leading into a discussion about, you know, which we prefer, the book or the movie. But I just really struggled with this book. In fact, it was hard for me to want to pick it up and read it. I just didn't enjoy reading it. No, and Suzanne Collins is usually so good about writing a story that's, like, both really interesting thematically. Like, the original trilogy is so much about, like, the the sacrifice of, like of war or just being involved in conflict and your own morality, right? Like, it's really gray in terms of, like, what Katniss has to do in The Hunger Games and, um, like, oppression and, like, capitalism or just, like, you know, right-wing governments and the people beneath them. And then, but then it's also super entertaining. Like, it's just a good, entertaining read. Yeah. Every chapter ends on almost a cliffhanger, right? That just propels you into the next chapter. Like, it's, it's the best of both. This feels like it's neither. Yeah. Like, I don't think thematically it's that interesting. I don't think it's saying anything that new. And then it's also kind of boring. Yeah. Like, the sense of place isn't that strong. Like, the capital doesn't really feel interesting. The characters are pretty bland and flat. Even Snow, for the most part, isn't that engaging as a main character. We talked about Lucy Gray being really shallow feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's really long. It, it's really long, too. And I listened to it on audiobook and I really needed to just to kind of like get through it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, this was just a kind of disappointing read for me. I mean, there were some good things in it and I did like it a bit. And it's interesting because like my problems with the movie are just problems based in like the plot of the book. I think the movie, the performances, the direction the set design, a lot of that helped to bring some of the weaker aspects of the book to life. I do still think the movie struggles because it is tied to this source material and to this plot and to the weird pacing of the book. Yeah, yeah. But I do think the movie kind of pulls it off better. I I agree. I'm going to go movie on this too. I think the lead performances sell the relationship like better. Like I still don't totally buy it, but like they feel more human. Yeah. Like you said, the set design is really good. Some of the action's good. Uh, Yeah, it's just more engaging. Like I think the finale with Snow kind of like chasing after Lucy Gray is more effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just, it's a better story in the movie form. Yeah. Yeah, but overall... Kind of like, I don't think this was needed. No, it we really don't, we wasn't. We didn't need this. Which is so disappointing because, like, Suzanne Collins is usually rock solid, right? Yeah. The original trilogy of books is great. Even the third one, which isn't as good as the first two. Mm-hmm. And her Gregor the Overlander series is, like, really good, too. Yeah. She's usually just so solid, and I'm just kind of... where sur- did Yeah, where did this come from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a movie for us for this one. Yes. Shall we do a lightning round? Yes. So first up for lightning round, I have to bring up Tigress. Okay, so Tigress is someone that we meet in the third Hunger Games book in Mockingjay, 
who used to be a stylist for the games and then was like somehow forced out of it by Snow or has some kind of vendetta against Snow. She has genetically modified herself to look like a cat and acts like a cat and eats like a cat. And where it, I had a problem with Tigress <laughs> from the beginning. When we did our episode on it, I was like, who is this person? Who is this? And why is she here? And what is the point of her? And, like, someone else was like, oh, she's in the prequel. Like, Collins has this whole story for her. And I was like, oh, interesting. She's going to be in the prequel. Here we have her. She's Snow's cousin. What does she do, Ian? She cooks and cleans. She cooks and she cleans for Snow. And she's his emotional support cousin. And that is it. She does nothing in this book. And there's one comment, Ian. There is one comment in the book (laughs) that Snow makes where he's like, Oh, I noticed Tigress didn't eat that much for dinner, but it's okay because I knew that she liked to snack on the raw ground beef, like before cooking, like she snacked on the raw meat. And I'm like, is this supposed to be a comment about how she only eats raw meat because she's a cat in the Mockingjay (laughs) book? I'm just like losing my mind. I'm losing my mind, Ian. Like, what is the origin of her being a cat and eating raw meat? Also... Her given name is Tigress. Yeah. That wasn't a name she gave herself when she decided she wanted to To be be a cat. cat. Yeah. She was just like. This is just the stupidest character background. Like this just just should have been. If we're going to have Snow have like a cousin that dotes on him and cleans his shirts and cooks him food. It should have just been an original character. Like having her be Tigress makes absolutely no sense. We get no insight into her character at all. It's stupid and I hate it. I 100% agree. And like, I don't know, there's a lot of characters in the first trilogy, like Katniss's mom, you know, who's kind of a caregiver, but also not really because she's kind of emotionally traumatized. And like, even a side character like that in the original books had depth and had something interesting going on, right? And, yeah. And wasn't just like, I'm the supportive uh, caretaker character here to help you in any way that you need. Like, it's so one-dimensional. Yeah. It's infuriating. Um, we're only going to do two lightning rounds since we're both uh, going to rant a little bit. <laughs> and I have to talk about the Jabber Jays, Adina. Yes. So we're, talked, we're, we're told about the Jabber Jays in the original trilogy – they're birds modified to eavesdrop on um, rebel communications to overhear people and then return to the capital and just squawk everything that they hear, right? Yeah. And then eventually the districts realized what was going on and they started feeding the birds false information. So then the capital was like, well, these are pointless and they release them into the wild, right? I never, I thought, I'm like, oh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Didn't think too much about it. Well, this book expands on that more. So the Jabber Jays are around. They're at the hanging tree. And when someone dies, they just start repeating what they hear, right? You Mm -hmm. know, and it's really disturbing and weird. And later, there's a whole conversation in the book that Snow has with a a scientist about, it gets really in-depth about the Jabber Jays. Yeah. And he's just asking all kinds of questions. And this is where it's demonstrated how they, somehow they they needed a a, a recording element to it, like a remote. I'm not sure exactly why yet. But they're like, he at one point he's like, oh, how did the districts like know what was going on? Like, I don't understand. And she's like, oh, we're not really sure how the districts figured it out. And I'm like, what do you mean? You released a new species of bird (laughs) into the environment and they just repeat everything that they hear like out loud to people. Well, that's only when they're in neutral, Ian. Yeah. But if they're in the record setting, they don't repeat anything until they come back. So they're only... So they're always in record mode when they're out in the environment. 
when they were sent out originally. Originally. Yeah. Now, because she, the scientist, Dr. K, says she specifically released all of them out on neutral because she knew that if they weren't able to talk, they wouldn't be able to survive with the other birds. Okay. Yeah. I know. Okay. It's so stupid. Well, you, you undercut my rant a little oh, bit because no. I was really amped up on this because I'm like, these birds are just repeating everything they hear. What do you mean that? I mean, the rebels didn't notice. Yeah. But I guess if they're always in record mode, then they would just be they, silent. They would be silent. It's it's still too, too much explanation for how it's these way too birds much. operate. Yeah. Like with the remotes and everything. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for Lightning <laughs> Round. That wraps up our episode. Thanks for listening. Um, if you'd like to support us, you can do so on Patreon. All our patrons get access to our Discord server, to bon- monthly bonus episodes. What else? Oh, they also get episode requests. So if you have an episode that you'd like us to discuss on your favorite book and movie combo, best way to get that request fast tracked is to become a patron yes uh if you can't become a patron uh on patreon leaving us a positive star rating or review on apple podcasts or spotify is extremely helpful to us and we really appreciate it uh you can find us on twitter instagram uh facebook all those platforms you can find all those links at covertocredits.com thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time see you next time Bye. bye